Tonight we begin with Exodus chapter 35, verses 4 through 19. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive wood for the light, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted to the ephod and breastplate. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering, clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases. The ark with its poles and the atonement cover and the curtain that shields it. The table with its poles and all its articles and the bread of the presence. The lampstand that was for the light with its accessories, lamps and oil for the light. The altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense the curtain for the doorway, the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the bronze basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases, and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyard, and their ropes, the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his sons when they serve as priests. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading, which will serve as the basis for our sermon tonight, is from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And out of respect for our Lord Jesus, his words and ministry, would you please stand for the reading of the gospel? And our gospel reading for tonight comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Before having a seat, would you please pray with me again? Lord, thank you for your word. This night we pray that it would work in our hearts to accomplish the purposes that you have for it. We pray that it would stir our faith, that it would increase our love for you and our love for others. So we pray this now, trusting in the name of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. Would you please be seated? So as you heard God's word read tonight, three different readings 
in some ways all unique and yet with the same or similar message, right, of what happens when God's people use the gifts that God has given to them to serve other people and to, to bring glory to our God himself. And these texts all speak of, uh, of the things that God would have us do. And I don't know about you, but ever since I was a little kid, I've always wanted to know why, right? So I was that kid. So if you're currently raising that kid, I'm sorry because this is what the future looks like, all right? But I always asked why. It used to drive my dad absolutely crazy, right? My dad would say, go get the garbage in the house. And I would say, why? Well, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Like the garbage needs to go out. But no matter what the, what the task was, what the chore was, whatever my dad would ask me to do, I would always say why. And my dad would get so frustrated. And if you're like me, you, you know exactly what's coming next. He would get so frustrated that finally he would just say, because I said so, right? That was never enough for me because I would follow that up by saying, well, why? Why did I say? It was like, it was just a never ending. And it really wasn't to antagonize him. I just always wanted to know the reason behind it. Now, listen, I, I know I'm not alone in this. I know that this is actually common to most people, that most people don't like just being told to do something. Most people want to know why. What's behind this? Not, not the obvious things, but the things that are less obvious. Why am I being asked to do something that I otherwise might not do? And frankly, God's word is full of asks, it's full of times when God tells us to do various things, and he simply tells us to do them, and we don't have the why. We have to search a little bit broader to get it. But if you are at least willing to admit that you're a, a why person, you're, you're going to appreciate the text for tonight. You're going to appreciate the fact that why is exactly spoken to in almost each one of the admonitions that's given. When we are told to do something, we're told why. We're told what the effect is. And so let's hear the whys. Looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter starts off just with a why for the entire context. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Right? The end is near. And as he says the end is near, as he lets us know this, he's giving us the why for all of the things that are about to follow. Right? He, he's saying to us, we, we as Christians are to have a mind about us which is different than just worrying about today. These are words that came directly out of Jesus. When Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own, we think about what it means to do these things and to have this eternal focus, this everlasting focus. It tells us to never be too caught up in just this very moment. Because as we broaden our perspective, we begin to see things a little bit more from the way that God intends for us to see them. We focus on lasting things. And I, I also think it bears, it bears note, because when we say that Peter here, writing the first century A.D., said the end of all things is at hand, or, or anytime the Bible says the end is coming quickly, it sort of makes us cringe a little bit, right? Because this was written 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like quick to me, right? So we say the end of all things is at hand. You would expect it to have happened in just a few years, in the lifetime of the hearers, certainly, and yet it doesn't. But he says the end of all things is at hand. When he says the end of all things is at hand, he is, he's making two statements. He's first calling us to acknowledge that each one of us only lives one lifetime here on this earth. And so our end will come. 
And we would say in the natural course of things, that's closer for some of us than for others. But unfortunately, we know that all too often it comes quicker than anyone would imagine. That all too often we hear of stories of people dying, as we would say, untimely deaths. And we acknowledge this. The end of all things is at hand. And so whether that's our personal end or a recognition of God's end for all things, it is at hand. It is something that we have to acknowledge. And as soon as I do, as soon as I speak about this to you who are here, it immediately starts to, to play different tapes in your mind, it starts to play different soundtracks in your mind, it starts to play different pictures and movies in your mind of things that you wish you had done and things you hope yet to do and things that you yet expect to do. Every one of those pieces obviously then starts to as the text would say, sober you up. You start to worry about lasting things. You're less worried about whether your socks match your shoes. And you're more worried about what is my legacy. You're more worried about why you were put here in the first place. And so the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be sober-minded, right? Therefore, pay attention. Be sober-minded sober and self-controlled. And here's the why. For the sake of your prayers, right? Be, be sober-minded and self-controlled. Be, be clear-headed. Right? This is a good admonition. Be clear-headed. Don't, don't let yourself be drawn side to side. Don't let yourself be, be drawn away from the focus that God wants you to have. Instead, be sober-minded. Have clear judgment. Focus on lasting things. And the why. You need to be clear so that your prayers make sense. Now, I understand what I'm saying here. Obviously, we know what the book of Romans says. We know that Romans says that the Spirit intercedes on our behalf. That's Romans 8. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf. In other words, the Spirit takes our prayers with our jumbled words, with the things we don't even know to ask for. The Spirit takes the prayers that we utter to God, the, the prayers that we get out in a wooden way when we follow different, when we follow different patterns of prayer. The Spirit takes all of that stuff and the Spirit interprets it before God, interceding for us, speaking for us, so that our prayers are heard. And so Peter's admonition here is different than that. He's not saying, be careful how you pray. He's not saying that if you, if you don't pray the right way, God's not going to hear you. No, instead he is saying, be clear-minded so that you know what to pray for. Be clear-minded so you don't get lost in praying for ridiculous things in this world. Kind of like this. Tomorrow, there are going to be a lot of people who are praying for the outcome of a sporting event. There are more important things in the world. Now, I'm a sports fan. I tell you that all the time. Don't misunderstand me. But what if we were clear-minded? What if we actually believed in the gift of prayer, that God was calling us to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters? What if we actually believed that we were speaking to the Almighty God and He was listening? Is the football game really the thing we should be asking about? Or is there something more? Be self-controlled and sober-minded so that your prayers are clear. 
so that as you speak to the Almighty, because that is what you are doing, and as He hears you, because He has promised to, pray the petitions which are really on your heart. Offer those to the Lord, because the end is at hand. Let's keep going. He says then, above all, love one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Notice he says, above all. So even more than this, above all, love one another earnestly. Keep on loving one another earnestly. And I'll tell you, I've been through this text multiple times with multiple groups of people this week. And the question that keeps coming up from this text is the question, what does the word earnestly mean? What does it mean to love someone earnestly? And this this is what I've arrived at. It's an answer that only you can give. It means loving someone honestly, authentically, really. It means doing those things which love does, sacrificing for somebody else. And it can't be faked. When it says love one another earnestly, it's a measure that only you can know if you match or not. If you actually are loving someone or if you're doing it with an ulterior motive. If you're doing it with an ulterior motive... That's not loving someone earnestly. And you might say, well, what would it be like to love someone without earnestness? What would it mean to not love someone authentically? And I think we know. Because I think we've all been loved that way. I think we've known people who have, who have said that they're actually loving us, but really we're just doing it so that maybe somebody else would see. Or we've known someone who would love us or say that they were loving us, but as soon as things got difficult, they would go a different direction. They wouldn't do the things that love truly does. I'm I'm not saying this to call into question other people's love. I'm actually showing a mirror. Because each one of us has to recognize that we can fall into this camp all too easily. That we can fake love. Above all, Peter says, love one another earnestly. Why? What does it matter? And he says this, because love covers a multitude of sins. Because love covers a multitude of sins. And I have to tell you, I I wrestle a lot with this phrase, with this why. I, I wrestle with it because on the surface, I know the way that we want to read it. The way we want to read this When we say that love covers a multitude of sins, when he says love one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins, is this. When I love you, I cover up your sins. Right? That's the way we initially read it. We put ourselves in the position of authority. I'm better than you. I'm morally superior to you. And so when I love you in this way, I'm I'm displaying that. I'm covering over your sins. But the text is deliberately vague. It's it's deliberately ambiguous. It doesn't say that you must interpret it that way. Instead, it's completely neutral. It says love covers a multitude of sins, and it doesn't distinguish whose love is covering whose sins. And so it's very possible that as I relate to you with earnest love, that you are covering my sins, my shortcomings, That you're receiving my love and you're receiving it in such a way that it allows you to look past this this frail, fallible human being who makes stupid mistakes. And instead you're going, "I, I love you. And because of that, your sins are covered. And I want to give you one more way to look at this. And it's equally important. 
It's that when you love more, when you love earnestly, it's your own sins that you are covering over. And you'd say, well, well, how can you arrive at that? Very simply, because the word here, cover, means also to bury. When you love someone this way, when you love someone earnestly, and the more that you are doing the things that love does, the more that you are sacrificing because you want the best for them and not the best from them, the more that you are caring and doing the things that God invites you to do, is more that you are doing this in an earnest way, you are burying your own sin of selfishness. And you're living for someone else. And when we hear these words, love covers a multitude of sins, every single one of those definitions ought to pop into our head. And not only those, but they should all be, they should all be umbrellaed by this understanding. It is the pure and perfect love of Jesus Christ that covers over all of our sins. Yours the person that you are loving, both covered in Jesus Christ. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so he says, love in this way. Love in a way that the world cannot stop. Love in a way that seems impossible so that God's love can shine, so that it can display that this is something more, so that others might see this all-surpassing love of Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. We need this love. We need it as human beings because we need our sins covered. We need it as human beings because we read in the Scriptures that it is not good for the man to be alone, that it is not good for any of us to be alone, that God calls us into community together, and that as we are in community together, we are to be ones who are marked, noted for our earnest love. I'm a sports fan, so I'll say it this way. The church ought to lead the league in earnest love. The church ought to be the ones who are looked to, the ones that others see, and see this demonstration of God's love, and, and see us doing things for one another that God intends for us to do, living this out, and as we do, to say, what is different about them? So that we can give this answer. Jesus. Because he loves us in an impossible way. Because he covers over our sins when they are a gross violation of him. He, in fact, would be the one to pour this love on us. And so we begin love differently. Love one another earnestly. Let's keep going. And then he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think it's interesting that this one he doesn't give a why for. And by the way, I think it's actually for a deeper reason than we might think. The reason why he doesn't give it is because they understand it. You see, he's writing to a people who are being persecuted, a people who have been scattered. And so he says, as this people has been scattered, as you have been scattered, if you see a brother or a sister, invite them in. They have nowhere else to go. But you're still humans. So stop grumbling about it. Just do it. The day may come when you yourself need hospitality. Now, I think that's important. I think that's, that's important for us today. Not because we are scattered in the same way, not because we are persecuted in the same way, but, but as we talked about last week, it's because in the world there is this chaos, and yet we in Jesus Christ can have confidence. And so we are to invite people out of this chaos 
into the confident peace of Jesus Christ, that we are to show hospitality in this way, to say, come within our doors, come within our walls, come, come and receive. Understand what God has in store for you. Come and understand a different type of confidence that trusts that God is coming. And then this, this long part, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, in other words, here's the why, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. As each one has received a gift, which means you, sisters and brothers, you have received gifts. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your physical capabilities are. It doesn't matter what you look like or what your IQ is. God has given you, you, a unique gift. The gift of who you are. You hear it all the time as a cliche, but it is absolutely true. You are the only you that God has made. Even if you're a twin, you are still the only you whom God has made. You are a unique gift to the world. Not so that you can beat your chest and say, I am a gift to the world. But instead, so that you can see yourself as a servant of others of one who loves others, is one who recognizes that God made this world to be a blessing one to another, for us to be in community, to experience and to share his love, to be and experience his presence. And as we do that, that we are to use these unique gifts and talents to do this calling out of chaos into confidence, calling out of confusion into peace, calling out of darkness into light, calling out of unloved and unknowing into loved and known, that this is what we are meant to be and God has called you to have a purpose in this. And so use it for others, not just for yourselves. You see, it is very easy for us to turn that corner and to say, yes, God has given me all of these things. He's made me unique in who I am and I work hard and because I do, I benefit and I benefit and I benefit. That's wonderful. It's a whole part about vocation that we'll talk about another time. But God doesn't only intend for you to use your gift for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others. I want to tell you two quick stories and then we'll finish. I knew two different people, both of whom were considering ministry. And every time you tell a story about someone considering ministry, it's always a danger because most of us are not called into ministry. At least not paid ministry in the church, you know what I mean. But, but I think you'll resonate with at least one of these two stories. The first one is a guy named Ryan. And when I knew Ryan, brilliant guy, he was actually thinking about punting everything that he had lived for up till that moment. And he had believed that God was calling him into ministry. Other people were encouraging this gift in him. And this was something that he said, you know what? This is crazy because everybody thinks I'm going to go this direction. And the path is laid out before me. It's obvious for me. And what's going to happen is I'm going to make a lot of money doing what I'm doing. But I think God's calling me to take a different direction. I think God's calling me to go a different way. This is what he actually said to me. He said, what if God, I, I'm not lying when I say brilliant guy, what if God called me to use this brain for his service? And I'm like, yes, exactly. Let's do this. 
until every door closed. And he was, he was somewhat staggered by that. Because he was sure that God was going to say yes to this. He was sure that this was calling and his leading. And, and to be sure, there may come a day when that still comes. He's, he's not a very old man. But the answer was no. And so he said, well now, how has God called me to use this brain doing the thing that I'm going to be doing to serve other people and to point to him? And as he did that, he thought about different ways that he could encourage other people, even in a a career which was secular, a career which wasn't a church work. He sought different ways to use those gifts and talents to be a blessing to other people. That's Ryan. I'll tell you another story. The story of a guy named Chad. Chad came to me later in life, and he said, I'm really wrestling with this. I, I think that God is calling me to go into ministry. And by the way, when you're a pastor and somebody comes to you and says this, it's like, yeah, all right. Like, this is awesome. It's almost, almost not quite as good as when somebody says, I want to be baptized. And I was like, wow, this is a big change for you. He has kids. He had a very, very, very high-ranking job in his business. And he was making a lot of money, he told me. And he said, will you pray for me with this? I said, yes. We prayed in that moment. Then he asked, will you pray over a period of weeks for me? I'm going to make this decision by the end of the month or something like that. And so we did. And I promised. And every single day I prayed for him. He came in at the end of the month. And he said, "Um, I don't think I'm going to go into ministry. I don't think that's where God's calling me. And then this is what he said. Remember I told you Ryan's word was, what if God's calling me to use this brain? And he said, you know what? The church is always going to need benefactors. And what if God's calling me to make all this money so that I can be a benefactor for God's kingdom? Now, in both of those stories, in both of those instances, and I hope you can resonate in some way with both of them, but at least in one way with one of them, I I hope that you hear a maturity of faith, a maturity to say, I'm going to do something which is totally different from what I otherwise might have done, not just For you, not just a career change, I'm not asking you all to go home and rethink your entire lives, but to say, how has God made you who you are and what's he going to use your unique gift to do in his kingdom? And see, the thing that that always, always, I will say, leaves me guessing is what would happen in the church if every single one of us Ask that question. God, how do you want to use me for your service? Again, you heard me say, I I just told you two stories of two people who didn't end up in full-time career ministry, but who both sought to use the unique gifts and the unique skills that God had blessed them with to be a blessing to others, to be a part of this kingdom together, that they would serve with other people. So what is it that God is calling you to do? How is he calling you to use your gifts and your talents to be a blessing to others so that others might know the work of Jesus Christ in their lives? It's a question only you can answer. It's a question that's meant to be answered in community. To share with someone another. To ask someone to pray for you. To ask someone to, in fact, be one who will walk alongside you in this. To ask someone to mentor you. To ask someone to give you some insight in what they're thinking. See, all of this is what it means for us to serve together. And the question that always puzzles me is what if everybody that came to worship here at Cornerstone, 
There'll be 1,500 people this weekend across our sites. What if we all saw it one way this week? One way. We could make a small difference for the sake of God's kingdom. What would happen? So here's my challenge. Let's try it. You try it. Don't worry if all the other 1,500 people do or not. Trust God with it. Allow him to, to shape and mold you. And with the challenge comes a why. It's how the Apostle Peter ends this reading. He says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The why is so that God would be praised. The why is so that others would know what God is doing in a, in a small way. I, I don't believe the world is going to change tomorrow. I don't believe our community is going to change tomorrow. But I do believe that as God does this in us, as we see opportunities to serve, that that becomes our song of praise to God, what we call a doxology. The words that Peter speaks as he envisions what would happen as God's people use their gifts, their talents in their unique ways to love and to serve others. What happens is that God is praised. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. A song of praise sung by a group of people who are serving together. For the glory of Jesus Christ, amen.